You're listening to Art Affairs, episode 43. Today I'll be talking to Renze Stanley. So my name's Michael Faith, and this is Art Affairs. Art Affairs is my attempt at shining a spotlight on the many wonderful people that make up this amazing art community, featuring conversations with artists, gallerists, curators, telling their stories. You can dig through previous episodes, complete with show notes at artaffairspodcast.com, but the best way to stay plugged in is to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're really enjoying the show and want to help support what I'm doing here in an even bigger way, check out the Art Affairs Patreon. Not only does it give you an opportunity to help keep the show going, but there are several community-oriented benefits as well, like getting early access to episodes and suggesting questions for upcoming guests. You can find all the information about that at patreon.com slash artaffairs. You can also connect with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Art Affairs Podcast. All right, so today's guest is artist Arinze Stanley. Arinze is actually shown and is friends with former guest Ken Wajubu and was the person that Ken suggested me try to have on when I chatted with him earlier this year. Arinze's artwork falls firmly into the category known as hyperrealism, and his ability to render portraits with such incredible amounts of detail is extremely impressive. But I think what's most powerful about his work, and what really grabbed a hold of me, is the way that he shines a harsh and unflinching spotlight on some very difficult social issues, using his platform to spread awareness. We talk about his sense of activism on the show, as well as when he first came to the realization that art could actually be a viable career, his upcoming solo show at Corridor Contemporary, and a whole lot more. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Arenze Stanley. Arenze, welcome to the show, man. It's so good to have you on. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, awesome. And shout out to Ken real quick for recommending you. And I know you guys uh, have shown together in the past and, and sort of came up around the same time, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but it was cool of him to, to suggest you. Yeah, Ken. Ken is a cool friend. We've been friends for a while now, so I'm not surprised. <laughs> he's, an ama- he's, a, he's an amazing guy. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And so let's dive into your background a little bit. And, and I know that you were born and, and spent most of your life in Lagos, Nigeria, which I've learned is, is the largest city in Nigeria and sort of a cultural hub. Um, for the country. And, and from what I understand, your, your family um, throughout your life has owned a business that turns paper into envelopes. Um, so did you sort of spend a lot of time as a kid in that factory environment? Yeah, I literally, I literally grew up from I don't know, like when the company literally started, when, the, when it wasn't a factory. You know? I was still a kid and my dad used to manually make envelopes with his hands. You know? Next thing you know, he had he had to employ some other guys who he trained how to make envelopes with hands. And after a while, I was in like primary school, and when I got into secondary school, he had got his first machine. So I literally grew up 
I literally grew up with the, you know, business. No, that's really cool. And and so, uh, you know, did you have much exposure to art then? If you were sort of around the family business much, did you have any exposure to art? Like, what? How did you get interested in art? I I didn't really, you know, when I started drawing, I I was just a six year old kid who just loved drawing, you know, for just this, you know, the sole purpose of drawing. It was till I was, um, it was till like 2012. When I like started to draw again after a long time, I actually found out that oh wow, I can actually do this as an you know like a career. I can actually have a career in art. So I started to train myself, and that's just how I started. So as a as a kid, it was more of just uh, something you did for fun. It wasn't something you ever imagined that you would really be able to do as a profession. Yes. I didn't even see it as a profession. Mm. I still don't see it as a profession. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, similar, you know, in that same vein, you, you, when you went to the university, you went to Emo State University. Um, I guess, why did you choose that school in particular? What was it about that school that attracted you? Well, um, it was mostly, uh, you know, my, my parents really wanted me to study in the East so I could get a grasp of the Igbo culture. That's my native culture. And I could actually learn a lot more ab- about speaking my language, which is Igbo, and which you know it really, it really did some good. I learned a lot in the East. So just kind of connecting with your culture—that's yeah. that's pretty cool. And and so your focus was agricultural engineering, uh, which is obviously very different from what you're doing today. Yeah. Why agricultural engineering? Was what was your career goal at that point? Well, to be honest, agricultural engineering wasn't my goal. I wanted to study aeronautical engineering, so like, I just had to make a tough choice. Was that not available at that school? Yeah, it it wasn't available. And so, did you have any opportunity to take any art classes? Was that something that was available at that school at all? Nah, I in school I didn't really like even think about going to art classes. So I, I, I mean. There literally wasn't any, mm-hmm. except the except like you were like in school, and maybe you're an art student, so you have to. So I never really got any art lessons. I just started to draw, you know, from scratch. Keep making mistakes till I sort of learn, you know, the processes myself. And then I got exposed to some other artists, which were very inspiring, you know, and. Uh, over the years, it's more like a learning process. So you mentioned 2012, that that was when you rediscovered art or you discovered it as an opportunity that you could maybe pursue as a career. How did you make that discovery? In 2012, I was, okay, let me put it this way. It's like a kind of love story. So in 2012, I was on my couch and I was like on holiday. So I was in the house on my couch and I was watching a YouTube video. So something popped up and I was like, I was watching the clip from this Nigerian blogger. Uh, she said something about an artist, Kelvin Okafo. He made amazing drawings, you know, like, like I think she was talking about uh, comparing Africans that I represent in Nigeria over abroad, you know in a positive light. And then she mentioned Kelvin Okafo. I went and searched Kelvin Okafo on the internet. It was, it was amazing. Uh, 
I found out that he was making drawings and, you know, the stuff that I do, you know, I, I make drawings too. But, you know, see, seeing him on a very accomplished level, doing what he loves doing. And, you know, it really motivated me to, you know, you know, dive into art fully without even looking back. You know, I, I, I felt motivated. I felt inspired. So I started drawing on a full scale in 2012. And, uh, as you know, still drawing. <laughs> so, I mean, that was a pretty life-changing discovery. Um, yeah. I guess, was that also the point that you realized that, that maybe you could make a career out of this, that, that you wanted to try to pursue this as a profession? Well, about making a career out of it, I, 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 I realized that you can make, uh, you can build a career out of it, but like, I wasn't even thinking about like a sustainable career. I mean, it's something I, I love doing and I could you know, actually do. But now, uh, I think a lot of what made me start drawing in general was like a combination of so many things at the same time. 2012 was one of the highlights of my life. As of that same year, I, I faced the first brutality, uh, that I, by military, the, the beat me up in my school. Oh, wow. And, you know, part of that was the reason why I, it kind of like shifted my direction of what I was, you know, creating. I, I used to just love to draw people, you know, friendly people. Then after the event, my works have been directed towards, uh, you know, fixing part of my society that my my words can't, you know, fix. What happened in, uh, I guess if you're comfortable talking about it, what happened in 2012 that, that caused you to kind of realize the flaws that you're seeing today? Yeah, I mean, uh, I was in my hostel in school with my friend. Uh, I was in his room. So uh, all of a sudden we got a knock from the door and... It was like, I, I went to open the door and then I found out that it was three military men, and I think three or two. So I asked them, um, I greeted them, of course, in the morning, good morning. And they were like, I should, uh, am I Ifani? And I was like, no, I'm not. But they say he's in this room. And I'm like, no, I just came to visit my friends in the room. So they called me and my friend out and they started to make us do frog jumps. And it was so funny. This, this happened so quickly. Like I, I didn't even realize like how much trouble I was until my friend in front was kind of like confused and he was trying to talk to me when we were doing the frog jump. And then the military man used the back of his gun to hit his head. Oh, and wow. I was, I realized that, oh, wow. I'm, I mean, I'm really in big shit right now. Sorry for using the word. <laughs> so like, we, after frog job, now told us, they now started to use, uh, fan belts. I have photos of this. Started to use fan belts to flog me. And they were like so suspicious that I was the one they were looking for, which was, which I wasn't the one, you know, like, and the more I kept trying to defend myself that, Hey, my name is Arinze. I'm trying to speak. I'm trying to tell you something. I'm trying to tell you that I'm not the person. The more I tried to speak, the more they felt threatened by me because back then in school I had a, I had a beard you know and you know military men here are not allowed to keep beards so they kind of perceive you as you know pompous because you you have a beard which doesn't make any sense right uh so like the more I kept speaking to them that I didn't do this I am not the person you're looking for 
they they started to beat me the more because they felt like I was challenging them. And there is something that one of them said, uh, is obey before you complain. And I'm like, wow. This is a f- not this is a common phrase here in Nigeria where they use the military mental to the people, you know, obey before you complain, you know. And that means they have the right to continually continually abuse you until you you know submit to them which which this this part of my life really struck me because at, at that point i felt like oh, well i know that i've not been the mo- a very good speaker in the past but i mean i've never realized how helpless my my voice has been you know in cases like this and how i cannot just you know use my mouth to speak about these things i i i just i should probably take charge of one of the gifts that god has given me you know to you know pass this message and and funny enough it's been it's been going so well i mean over the years i've been able to reach out to audiences that i would never have yeah. speaking about what i what i deep what i'm deeply concerned about and you know i, I that's how i feel like this is this is what i'm supposed to do Interesting. So it was that event that kind of shifted your focus from just fun, you know, lighthearted portraits to something with more social commentary. Um, and so, you know, you, you, you realized that maybe art was something that you could pursue. 2012 was a big uh, time period for you, but you continued to, to pursue your engineering degree, didn't you? You were halfway through school. Did you stick with your engineering degree and continue to finish that up? Yes, I, I did. I um, I graduated in two thousand and fourteen, and ever since then, I went to the I went to um, NYSC in two thousand and I went to serve the country in two thousand and sixteen as a youth copper, and you know after that, I just I just left it all. I didn't pursue engineering anymore because I felt like you know the more I kept going in, the more I kept growing in this artistic journey, the more I keep realizing that I'm in the right path. And, you know, you have that gut feeling and, you know, you feel like you have a purpose in life. I just stuck to, you know, I just stuck to my gift. You mentioned that you, you served your country for for a year um, after graduating. Is that something that everyone in, is that like required of people that go to the university in, in Nigeria? Yeah, that's required. Even if even if you're uh, an international student and you want to work in Nigeria, you have to serve the country for a year. I served as a physics teacher. Um, I was really good in physics. Do you get the choice? Is that something that they give you an option or did they assign you to something? Well, I think they assign you to your PPAs. They assign you to your places of um the places that you're going to work. If you're going to work in a school, they assign you to a school. If you're going to work in a, in a hospital, that's if you're a medical student and you want to work in a hospital, and you're going, you're going to have to work in a hospital. You know, so they assign people with what they study to, to different places in Nigeria. Like I, I had to leave Lagos to go all the way to Kaduna, mm. which is really, really far away from here. And you know, I, I got to, to love the place and the people, you know, I'm seen outside my comfort zone for once. So that's the goal of the NYSC. Yeah, yeah. So when, once you finished up your public service, did you come back to Lagos at that time? Yeah, I did. I came back to Lagos. And what kind of work were you doing once you got back home? Well, I was 
you know, still in the family business as I was here. I was supposed, I was supposedly supposed to be the um, next in line you know, to for the business. So I have to be here. I have to be here in the factory. And I spent most of my times here at the factory without working for about months until, you know, like, um, I just decided to carve out a small space in my room to start drawing. Hmm. How did you make time for both? Like, how did you make time to, to I guess, continue to, to grow as an artist and also work in the family business? Well, I say I sacrifice something for something, and that one thing will be my sleep. <laughs> I, I gave it all. I gave it all up. I mean, everybody was worried. Everybody was worried about me. I was. I wasn't sleeping well. You know, my parents. My parents back then when I used to stay with my parents, they would come to my room by four a.m. in the morning for some like routine checks, you know, and they'll see me still up drying, you know. So yeah, I had to sacrifice my sleep. And so that was dedication. And and then so just a couple of years later, you had your your debut kind of group show at um, Omega Gallery in Lagos there. That was the Insanity Show. I talked to Ken a little bit about that. Um, so how, how did you first connect with the gallery, with Ken, and start building some of those relationships? Well, um, it was like, like I said earlier, I think it was like a chemical reaction. I feel like there was a buzz of a, a lot of artists coming out from Nigeria, you know, young artists. And then there was, uh, there was uh, a group, the fraught group, that uh, was head, that uh, was, um, owned by Mr. Frank Momo. So Mr. Frank, uh, contacted Ken, I think. And then, like I said, Ken referred me to the show. So I got a call from Ken in 2016 and he was like, Hey, Arise, what's up? Do you, you want to, do you want to, be part of the show and you know it was it was crazy <laughs> and i was like yeah this is going to be my first show you know before then i already knew ken but like but like the show was what just you know me those brothers because ever since like we've always been close that's amazing that's really cool and so it wasn't it wasn't very long after that that big event for you that you started showing in the united states uh, and just globally, uh, how did how did you make that leap outside of Nigeria and start getting noticed and recognized internationally? After the show in 2016, I didn't have any other show, so I got contacted by uh, an arts curator and uh, a gallerist in the U.S., Marcel Marcel Katz. I I, I got contacted by Marcel Katz and Tig Egan, so a couple of guys. They were interested in my work and they were, they were like, hey, Arize, do you want to show in Miami? And I'm like, <laughs> do, you, do we want to show in Miami? I'm like, I don't even have my international passport. <laughs> <laughs> I had to start, I had to like, you know, they had to convince me about the show. They paid for my flight tickets and they brought me to Miami. I had my first show at Scope Art Fair. That was it. I mean, that, that happened so fast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny because like you, you graduated in 2014, you started showing in 2016, then you get in international shows just after that. You had your first solo exhibition in 2018 at Jonathan Levine. It's just like boom, boom, yeah. boom, just one right after the other. Um, I, I guess how did you connect with Jonathan and start, um, you know, setting up that solo show? 
as soon as I as soon as I came back to Nigeria, I got an email from Jonathan and it was like, Hey Arinze, am I interested in getting a show in his gallery? And that was it. I was going back to the US again. <laughs> and and I had a show. I got to know Jonathan Levine. He has represented a lot of artists that I like and I love. Uh and I, and I you know and I've seen the way his gallery has, you know, brought a lot of people from the you know, from the from stage to stage. I I read a lot about his gallery, so I agreed to show with him in New Jersey. And that was my first solo exhibition. Yeah, that's amazing. And and do you do you still um work with your father during the day, like at the business? Do you still work with the family business, even though you've you've now become an international, you know, artist? Well, basically I'm always I, I'm always dedicated to my family business. Uh Right now, I just left my home studio and I brought my studio into a new building that is, you know, also owned by my family, but closer to the business. This way, I put my eye on ground on what's happening, you know, rather than being distant all the time. Um, so let's let's dive into your work a little bit. And, and you, the, the mediums that you mostly work in are charcoal and graphite um, on paper. I guess, what is it about um, working in graphite that, that you find so um, appealing is it? Is there something about it that that you like, or is it just what you've always felt comfortable with? Well, I when I started drawing, I started drawing like when I was six years old, and I I grew up in a in a paper business. You know, I I got to love paper absolutely. I got I got to love paper as my favorite toy. Uh, there were different ways you could play with paper. You can either I had like a lot of paper, so you can either make like paper planes or like boats. Sometimes some of the most interesting things I do with paper is construct and draw. So basically my, my two best friends were like my pen and my paper. So I, I just, I love drawing. I love, I love that sensation of giving the strokes on the paper. I love that, you know, it's a deep experience and it's something that is very addictive, you know? Yeah. Once you start drawing, you just start drawing because of how much, you know, it satisfies you. And I think that's how I fell in love with graphite. And it's really cool that it, it ties all the way back to your childhood and just growing up around so much paper that that was just around you all the time. Um, yeah. Are there other mediums that you'd like to explore someday, like paints or any other types of, of medium? Yeah, like I said, I was, I, was, uh, I was also very interested in construction, so... I think uh, something on my mind, something that I'm already working on right now, is going to be my first sculpture. I, I'm going to try my best to, you know, do it the most Arinze Stanley way possible. Nice. Uh, and yeah, just try and let it come from an original. I have never learned sculpting before, but I, I want it to come from somewhere very original, you know. And is that the um? I I know you you mentioned something on your your Instagram about working on a new metal piece. Is that what you're talking about? Is it, is it a metal sculpture? Oh no, it's not. It's not going to be a metal sculpture. This is a. I I think what you meant was. A, so I I have a piece, a very like large piece, my biggest work here. So I'll be featuring an actual metal sculpture in my work. Ah. Yeah, but I'm I'm open to exploring metal sculptures because I I love metal sculpting and I love a lot of welding. So I think I could fuse that together. I mean, there's there's a lot to do. There's a lot I could do. What is the um? What type of um? I guess materials are you using for the the first sculpture that you mentioned? You said you were just getting into sculpture. What is that going to be? 
So like I'm I'm gonna explore what I, I have called uh hyperdimensional reality realism. That's hyperdimensional realism. So it's going to be something from a place of my deep thoughts. Uh something that you've never seen before. So when when you're first starting on a, a new drawing um, or, or a new body of work for like a larger show, what's usually your first step? You know, I, I know you love photography and, and that you use that as a big source um, for reference. So is your photo shoot the starting point for a piece or have you already started sketching stuff out even before you start taking photos? Yeah, I, I, I sketch a lot of my thoughts first, then the composition, the actual photo, photography is like, the third step, the fourth step. How do you source the, the models? Are these people that you know, or are they just people that you hire? Like, who are the models that you work with? Well, this this one, I, I don't know how this happens. I, I don't have physical words. I don't have words to explain how this one happens. I just meet people and then I'm like, oh, I see you in this drawing and it matches with words in my head. And and it's, it comes out amazing all the time, so that's why I I don't really use models. I just use people I I meet in my real life. Do you think that it it helps if you already know the people? Like, does that connection make the piece stronger usually? Yes, yes. Sometimes, sometimes it's more of what I see in you. I I don't know how that works, but when I see something in you, I I feel like I connect to that aura that personality you know to make something once um once you wrap up the photo shoot and you have a lot of um you know kind of references to work with um do you what's the next step after that do you jump just right into the final piece or do you make a more refined drawing as sort of a middle step uh from there i just jump into the main piece uh sometimes i like to uh, modify the references so i think of ideas on how to modify the reference in sketch before I make the actual work raw. Not really a defined sketch, just a rough sketch to have the image in my head. Okay. Okay. And w- once you once you really start in on the final drawing, do you have a, a particular strategy in mind as you as you start to go through it? Like do you start from the top down? Do you start with a particular part of the anatomy, like the eyes? Like what's your approach? I I start anywhere. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like sometimes I feel like it's it's great to start from the eye because a lot of my life I I I studied all my pieces from the eyes, but along the line I try to explore other places like how does the head connect to the arm? Sometimes I could start with the arm and then you know go to the head. Sometimes I could just you know, I just play around with it. Do you like to work on one piece at a time until it's finished, or do you go from you know across multiple pieces? Nah, I I have like six works in the studio right now. So <laughs> I, I think I think that helps because you know sometimes you feel like doing this, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you feel like doing this other one, sometimes you don't. So I have like seven options, and it's exciting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And and you mentioned um you know moving into a new studio space. Is that um was that just so you could get closer to your family business, I guess, or was yes. did you outgrow your home studio? Uh and that so yes. I I actually outgrew uh I actually outgrew my family home and then eventually my own home. 
So now I, I, I figured I needed like a space that could contain all the works that I'm doing. So, you know, thinking about some of the themes that you work with, you, you say in your bio that, that you like to express strong emotions through your portraits. And we talked a little bit earlier about how your, your focus shifted from really happy stuff to something that was more social commentary. Um, I guess by expressing such strong emotions through your work, are, are you trying to evoke a particular response from the viewers? Like, what are you hoping that people come away with um, when they look at your work? Well, uh, personally, I don't really want anything to come to anybody's mind. Sometimes I create my pieces just so that I could, you know, comment like everyone else. You know, be part of the conversation, you know, see my mind and say how I think it is. You know, sometimes portray things in my own voice, which is my art. I knew that I knew this was this. I knew this was supposed to be my voice. And in 2016, in 2020, there was an NSAS protest, and this was coincidentally in the same year, in the same month that I was having my solar exhibition. So as soon as my solar exhibition kicked off. A lot of the works in my solar exhibition was, was talking about human rights abuses and also police brutality, which I have faced a lot of times in my life. And, you know, coincidentally, it kicked off this, the NSAS protest, which was one of the, you know, biggest protests in a, in a while, kicked off in the same month. And the NSAS protest was all about police brutality. I mean, it was worldwide. Everybody saw it. I felt like, yeah. I felt like a leader. I felt like somebody that was in the position to, you know, speak about these things through a medium, probably on, a, on an even global level, you know. And I don't know why I'm doing this, but I, I, I feel like it, it feels correct. It feels right. It feels like I'm just following my feelings, you know, doing what I love doing. So I, I want to connect with you through my works. Mm. I, I'm, I, I'm not really, I don't, I don't know what goes on in many people's mind when they look at my work. Some people, some people have a different perspective. Some people want to stick to that perspective. Well, well, I'm trying to send you a message through each of my works. You know. Yeah, and do do you feel that I guess um, do you feel that art can have an impact with with such you know overwhelming and large kind of amorphous issues? Do you feel that it can be an agent for change? Yes. Art is an agent for change. Let's put it down this way. Everything around you was somehow made from art. And that way it changed something about you. You know, all the designs we see in the world today had some artistic elements in them, you know, which changed the way. So art is an element of change. So I believe that even if not everybody connects to the message, a few do. And it, art has the way of touching your heart even more than words. You know, they say a picture has a thousand words. So you're speaking a thousand times louder. Mm, yeah, yeah. And and so, you know, you have several ongoing series that, that you work with across, you know, your entire portfolio. Um, one of those that, that directly contributes to this sort of activism that, that we've been talking about is the uh, the Machine Man series, which features, you know, various people coded in what appears to be oil. Um, and from what I understand, that series is talking about the impact that the oil industry has had on Nigeria and, and of course, the people of Nigeria. 
Uh, so, so tell me a little bit about that situation because I wasn't, it's something that I wasn't really super aware of until I started looking into your works and, and reading up on it. The Machine Man series was and is something of a project that I was working on, you know. It's, it's not enough to just say it's about petroleum alone, but it's about what is, what the people who have this resource are facing, you know. In the drawings, you see men with what with oil dripping out of their faces, with 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 you know strong expressions on their faces. This is this is what I feel like is in the heart of every sensible Nigerian right now. This sense of disappointment and how this natural resource that was supposed to take us to a greater height has been used to put us in poverty. You know. I wanted to capture that look, you know. If you ask everybody now on the street how they are feeling, nobody is feeling great. Everyone is everyone is frustrated. I mean, the prices of everything right now have gone up almost times too, and and the minimum wage has stayed the same. Okay, they changed the minimum wage, and till today the minimum wage is not even up to a hundred dollars, and it doesn't make any sense. Nigerians are are going into poverty every day. And we have this resource. What? I mean, most of the countries that are comfortable don't even have these resources. Sometimes it feels like it feels like the Machine Man series is just really what's on everybody's mind. You know, it's, it's really how everybody feels right now. Being a Nigerian, I am proud of. I'm proud to be a Nigerian. But what I'm saying is, the our leaders are really having us messed up. I mean. Many people here don't even earn up to $100 a month. That, that is insane. No matter how much everybody tries, no matter how much the U.S., the U.N. tried to you know, send aids and, and all these Nigerians, if you don't fix the government that is here, if you don't find a way to fix the corruption that exists in Nigeria, to be honest, there's no going forward because it's too much. And and I know that... that- one thing that you've 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 said in interviews in the past is that you and it's specifically related to this series is that you want to you know you want your works to be a voice for the voiceless um and i thought that was a very powerful statement and you know to tell the stories i guess of the people who are powerless to tell it themselves um where does that sense of heightened responsibility come from like how did you how did it come to be that you felt necessary that your platform tell these stories I already had this encounter in my life, and I know that at that point I was I was voiceless. I already know what it feels like to be voiceless, and I already know what it feels like to be voiceless on a on a very large level. And and I have embraced to be given the opportunity to speak. I'm going to speak. I mean, that's the least I can do. So I'm going to, I'm going to have to speak about these issues. I mean, that, that, that is, I, you, have you ever stayed for a long time wondering what your purpose on earth is? And then you'll be given an opportunity. It's okay. It's okay. No, that's really cool. And do, do you think there's going to be more, um, pieces in that series, the Machine Man series? Yes. I, I'm right now I'm, I'm at, uh, Machine Man 10 and I am wondering if I should continue. I should make the 10, the last one. Okay. So I haven't I haven't made a decision yet. So. Okay. 
Um, another another fairly new series that debuted in your your show at Corey Helford last year is the the Bullets and Denim series. Um, and number two of that one was probably my favorite piece of the show, just you know personally. Um, and I think both are really powerful. And and uh, you know for those that haven't seen those, uh, you know they they both have. Um, you know, pictures of men that uh, have what appear to be seams stitched in their face, like similar to what you would see on a piece of clothing, um, as well as bullet holes in their heads. Um, and, you know, that that's a pretty powerful kind of um, image to unpack. So what's the background for this series? And like, what's that story that you're trying to tell with it? Well, uh, the Bullet and Denim series uh, is basically a series that speaks about, you know, the impact of police brutality and force brutality on a, on a large scale and what it is doing to the audiences. You know, in, in, well, from where I'm from, if you have a ton, you know, ton jeans, a ton trouser, you just don't throw it away. You try to sew it back. You know, you, you keep sewing it and patching it back. A lot of people go through that. Not everybody has enough money to buy a new set of shorts or jeans anytime it gets damaged. So that patching back, I wanted I wanted people to understand what it's doing to us. You know, every day you go out in the street and then you're somehow assaulted by police and then you come back home and then then you you know you're going back in there tomorrow with the same possibility that you're going to get assaulted again. It got to the height. I mean, at that point, at that time in Nigeria, it got to the height. Till today, as of yesterday, I was looking at a lot of reports of people being brutalized by the same SARS unit that was disbanded last year. The same SARS unit that was disbanded. A lot of people are still complaining that they are being robbed till today. So I feel like I wanted to use that series to show people that, oh, these people have a bullet to their head. I mean, we can't take it anymore. You know, the, that's why I put a bullet hole in the head. I mean, we've taken it to the head. We've taken the, the, the insecurity is a lot. So I wanted to use this piece to, you know, talk about how Nigerians have to deal with being patched over and over again. And now we've taken it to the head. We can't take it anymore. Mm. Yeah, and so when that show came out um, that featured those pieces, that was, and, and you mentioned this earlier, this was around the same time that the NSARS movement really gained global awareness. It it became something that people around the world were talking about. Um, and, and of course, these are issues that that you've been speaking about in your work for, for many years. So it's it's pretty cool to see the, the struggles that you've been speaking about finally become recognized by the rest of the world. Um I was going to ask you if that gave you hope, but then you're saying that that's still something that you're dealing with, that, that SARS is still a problem. Um, I guess, how is that? How do we reconcile that? Like, how do we finally do something that removes it? Well, just so you know, SARS has been disbanded four times. And so you know that there's a chance that they're going to they're gonna come back again. And this time it might even be worse. So, I mean, it's, it's just only responsible to, you know, speak against it whenever you see it. We've lost a lot of young people to, to, you know, this rule being it. I've always, I've also been a victim of SARS. Last year, although it wasn't SARS, but it was also the police. I almost lost my eye 
Mm. And I had to have an eye surgery. Oh, wow. And nobody paid for it. Nobody, nobody paid for it. Nobody said anything. I got a call from the police. But at the end of the day, they were like, I should come back to the same state just weeks after my, just days after my operation. I was like, you guys are not even responsible. You know, they, nobody was ready. They weren't ready to give up the identity of the person that slapped me. Although they told me that they had him in, in the cell, but nothing. I would, because I had to leave that, that state for my surgery. So there's just no sense of responsibility within the police. So I, I want to speak up until something is done. Do you have any thoughts on how that might finally, I mean, how something can finally impact it? Because I feel like last year it gained such awareness. And if that hasn't made it go away, like what's going to make it go away? Like how do we address it? I think in general, speaking, sometimes you have to speak. Sometimes you have to shout. So, and I, I believe as you shout, you can be louder. And if you, if when you speak and the person can't hear you, you shout and then the person will hear you, you know. So I feel like not a lot of people have joined the movement yet in as much as uh, uh, the population of the people that have been speaking against it. I mean, there's no government that act, that has fought their people and, and won, you know. So you, you have to understand that it is a battle that we're going to win. This is the the battle of our fundamental human rights. We will win this battle. And I am not, I'm not doing this. I'm not saying this based on whatever figures I've seen in the past or whatever people have, you know, joined the movement. I'm saying this because it is a, it is true. You, our human rights will always prevail. So whether what is coming today, whether it's not coming today, whether it's coming tomorrow, it is a battle that I know that we're going to win. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, just thank you for being such a strong voice uh, on these issues and using your platform to shine a spotlight on them because I think it's super, um, super helpful um, for people outside of the country that don't really know these struggles. Um, so you, you using your your platform and your your community to to shine a spotlight on it, I think, is very powerful. So thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so let's talk about what you have coming up. I, I noticed that that you have two events listed on your site that are, are coming up. So I want to talk to you a little bit about each of them. Um, the first of them is this year's LA Art Show, which um, opens in about 10 days after this show should come out. Um, so I guess what are you doing for the LA Art Show? Uh, the LA Art Show, I, I created a piece for the fair. Uh, the Black Flower will be out it will be out. Um, the full image will be out as soon as the show starts. So it is, it's a very special piece to me. It's, some, it's, it's about a, a, a beautiful love story, you know, about the black woman, just celebrating the black woman. I want to celebrate that on an international level. So the piece is just all about love, you know. It's kind of ironic because everyone says, "Ah, Rizé, you only draw, you know, people in pain." And 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 for once, I just want to, you know, settle down and, and celebrate the love that we have for our women. Nice, in a beautiful piece. Very cool. Is that with a, a gallery? Is there or is there a gallery involved in that? Or yeah, is is available with uh, Arcadia Gallery. 
Very cool. Um, and and so um, I guess the other event is your next solo show at at Corridor Gallery or Cor- Corridor Contemporary, excuse me, yes. in Tel Aviv. Um, what can you tell me about this new body of work? Like, what's the show about? Like I said, I'm working on so many things right now. I'm working on a on a project, the hyperdimensional reality realism, I'm trying to name the show hyperdimensional reality. I wanna I want to show a different dimension from just drawing and I want to show how I can take my drawings from the paper and bring them to real life. So it's, it's going to be something that I've never done before. I'm going to be exploring, I'm going to be exploring some new mediums as well. Oh, wow. And it's, uh, I, I really want, I really want to create something to redefine how I express myself. So it's just this, I feel like the show is just going to record that phase of my life. So it's going to be a combination of, of three-dimensional works and drawings, or is it going to be all three-dimensional? Like, what's the, um, what's the plan there? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> when, the, when the show starts, you're going to see. I mean, I feel all these concepts come to me along the way. Whenever I prepare for a show, uh, like I prepare like a year ahead of the solo exhibition, you know, I want to talk about something, but I, I don't, sometimes, most times, I just know how I want to say it, but I don't, I, I haven't gotten the inspiration for the show. Along the line, I'm pretty confident I will. So all the, all the new stuff coming from my solo show, I already have the picture in my head, but I, I still have to work on it. So that is, that's what you're going to expect from me. Um, from now to the show, it's going to be something new. Does it have a date yet? Uh, not yet, but just 2021. Okay. Okay. Um, do you know how many pieces they're going to be? Or have you figured that out yet? Uh, probably around 11 to 15 pieces, I think. Depending. Very good. I mean, do you think you'll, you think you'll have an opportunity to go to the show in person? I I am definitely going to try my best because that is a show that I want to see. It's a show I want to see with my own eyes. And and so, you know, we talked a little bit about it earlier. You said, and I wanted to ask you about this on your Instagram several months ago, you, you said you started working on one of your largest drawings ever. Is that the seven foot tall piece that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, it's seven feet. And is that for this show or is that for something else? Um, I was commissioned to create a piece for a museum. Man, so apparently this is going to be one of my biggest projects ever. Oh wow! Because I have plan, I have plans to go even bigger. But for now, this is the biggest project I've, I've ever you know worked on. Have you encountered any new um, challenges involved in working on a piece that large? Yeah, uh, I was I was thinking about how to make uh, you know to stand on such a high level until I, I use a part of my engineering skills to construct <laughs> something more, something sort of like a scaffold in my studio. And it's something that I constructed from scratch. It has wheels and it could take me up on different levels. So it's, it's it feels like I already figured it out. Awesome. Very cool. So um, I guess as we close out, where can people find you online? So you can visit my website at www.arizestanley.com. 
and you can check me on Instagram, Harinze, and on Twitter, Harinze Art. That's H-A-R-I-N-Z-E-Y-A-R-T. Awesome. Very cool. So last question, and this is something that I like to ask everybody. Uh, who is one artist that you'd like to see me have on the show? One artist I'd love to see you have on the show is my very good friend, Oscar Okomi. Very cool. Why Oscar? Yeah, Oscar, Oscar is like a brother to me, man. He's, he's very witty, and he's someone you love to have a conversation with. Uh, he, we stayed together in the same studio couple, uh, like some years ago. And you know, he's, he's like a brother to me, so I think he's somebody you want to talk to because he he too has his own you know amazing you know artistic experience, and I would love to to share it with you. Very cool. Well, um, Arinze, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me today. I I think you're you know for one your art is absolutely incredible, but also thank I really applaud much. your powerful voice and. And, you know, spreading awareness for some of these really important issues. So I just wanted to appreciate you for that. Thank you very much. So that's it for this episode of Art Affairs. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Arinze. The way that Arinze has used his platform and his global reach to, you know, really speak out about what's going on in Nigeria and call attention to these, you know, societal issues is is really important. Um, being a voice for the voiceless, as he said. And it was really interesting to know that his own first encounter with police brutality was around the same time as he really started getting into art and how that you know, harrowing event in his own life changed his entire artistic focus. You know, it changed from him wanting to focus on, you know, lighthearted and happy subjects to instead using his art as a vehicle for providing commentary about these things. Um, And then for him to later encounter the same kind of brutality again, just as he's getting ready for his big solo show in LA last year. And I mean, even taking damage to his eye as a result. I think it just illustrates the importance of the message that he's sharing. But the way that the SARS organization continues to disband, then reform, then disband again in this never-ending cycle, yet there's still a violent and oppressive presence targeting the youth of Nigeria, it has to be such an overwhelming and defeating experience. But I I applaud people like Arinze and and Ken for, for continuing to fight in spite of that. And like he said, human rights will prevail eventually. I was excited to hear about what he's working on for his upcoming solo show at Corridor Contemporary. It doesn't sound like the show has a date yet, but the tentative title appears to be Hyperdimensional Reality and will feature Rinze's unique style and aesthetic, taking on new forms and expanding into new dimensions. Keep an eye on Rinze's and the gallery's social media to find out more about the show as it develops. So thanks again to Rinze for joining me today. And thank you for checking out the show. I'm truly grateful for your support. And just a reminder, one big way you could help out if you're really enjoying the show would be to check out the show's Patreon. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash artaffairs. And as always, you can contact me through my website at artaffairspodcast.com or on Instagram at artaffairspodcast. So until next time, be good to yourself and be good to each other. Thank you.